Shit Platypus Says, episode 63. Oh my God. The video's viral this morning. I need you to stop what you're doing and go read A Letter to America. Referencing Osama bin Laden's so-called Letter to America, written by the late terrorist leader about a year after the 9-11 attacks. And now, the propaganda getting new attention on social media in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. So Obama, Obama, (laughs) not Obama, Osama is back. Not Obama. Osama. Osama. Yeah, and actually, Pam, I thought this was really good in your teaching also, because you raised it. The collected works, the collected works of Osama bin Laden published by Verso. Or in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, yeah. Right, and when it was published, it wasn't like it had a mass readership. It it didn't like make a big splash at all. But the kids these days are reading it. Right. Um, Osama's letter, right? So what's specifically, what is it that the kids are reading? It's a letter to the America. It's a letter to America, isn't it? It's a letter to America. Okay. So it's a letter to America, which um, was censored in some of the different uh, social media platforms. I think the Guardian had to take it down. So they're only censoring it because kids are reading it. Uh-huh. They didn't censor it in, in the early 2000s because nobody cared. Because everyone was like, yeah, we know this guy is horrible. This is a horrible thing. And like, okay. Well, not everybody. Being, not, not everybody. everybody. Not everybody. But like Verso is not publishing it as like an affirmative. They're publishing it like to give context, which is a little different. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a lot of credit. Um, Sure. I think it was like, think about it, kids. I think that that book was like, think about it. You know, I don't think it was just context. It was like, hmm, isn't that isn't that interesting? <laughs> like, I think that's what that. Well, so that's like, about. I mean, I remember that because that's like my background in the anti-war movement, in the anti-Iraq war movement. In yeah. that moment, that was like, I remember that. But the like the re-emergence, the new renewed relevance of yeah. Osama bin Laden for the American left is tied into this turn towards militancy. Right. No, and I think that it's about. Israel, right? It's like, okay, so here he is blaming the the intervention in the Middle East and like the United States, everything's like the United States, like it's decades support for this, the, the state of Israel, the bloodshed in Afghanistan and the Palestinians. And like, basically, it's like everything is encapsulated in that letter, right? That they're like, oh, it's America. And if it is America, right, we need to really consider the resistance as legitimate um yikes yikes kids that's not okay (laughs) it's uh it's uh it's wild that you discover osama bin laden before discovering lenin and rosa luxemburg yeah yeah so go to your reading groups kids go to your platypus reading groups didn't osama then recently get canceled though like Osama was hot for like a hot minute, and then I saw that he got canceled. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. I don't uh, know. I'm not up. I'm not up. TikTok has canceled Osama bin Laden. He's problematic, I guess. I guess people 
know that he's problematic. They think it's problematic to kill a lot of civilians. <laughs> Wait a second. That's good. It's problematic. Your favorite has been deplatformed. This is the this is the headline. Just when you thought his reputation couldn't get worse, TikTok has officially canceled Osama bin Laden. I see. He's canceled as in he's canceled by TikTok, not canceled. No, he's can he's not canceled. He's being censored. He's being because sensitive. he's too successful. Because That's he's too problem. successful. It's not his that he's canceled. Millions. It's that they're of trying to curtail users. his success. They're trying to curtail it's... his success. Yes. Uh, he discusses the history of Israel-Palestine conflict and the impact of the Jewish lobbyist on America's foreign policy. Oy vey. Oy vey. Did your father hear about this? Don't tell your father about Osama being popular. <laughs> oh no all right well um yeah watch out kids out there watch out go go to the reading group all right talk soon gabe take bye. care bye bye hello welcome to a new episode of ship platypus says the commentary on the commentary on the left a special holiday edition my name is pamela nogales and i'm one of your co-hosts this is a longer episode dedicated to the Israel-Palestine conflict. It has been a disorienting period for the left from October 7th onward. In order to make sense of the present and to provide an education for our listeners, our audience members, our readers of the Platypus Review, Platypus is hosting an international series of panels titled Left Perspectives on Israel and Palestine. We've already had one at the University of Chicago in Oregon, as well as in London. Many more are to come. We'll include those in the episode description. They are also up on our YouTube channel. The object of our panels is not to choose the person that you agree with the most, but rather try to think about what they've said and what has not been said, the problems that they've raised and the problems they could not work through we certainly don't know any better than those attempting to formulate a politics for the present on the left, but we do think that the current state of helplessness that we are experiencing should prompt our listeners and those curious about the state of human emancipation to consider what the left is saying and whether or not it points to a future where such conflicts would cease to exist. In the first part of this episode, Platypus member Gabe Gaster and I discuss the recent University of Chicago panel on Israel and Palestine. We take up the disagreements among the panelists as well as the assumed agreement and the response from the audience. The second segment features sound bites and brief interviews from pro-Palestine rallies recorded by our members in Auckland, New Zealand and Philadelphia. Lastly, in the third part, the current conflict has prompted Rebecca and Lisa to speak with our member Ian Morrison about the past engagements from our archives. They talked about the founding moment of Platypus, as well as past panel initiatives and the politics of solidarity and decolonization. We've included links to the references made during this archive segment, which I think are quite important for anyone trying to get their head around what's happening today. Our European conference is happening on the 25th to the 27th of January in Berlin. The theme is 100 years after Lenin, in observance of Lenin's death. More information coming soon. The schedule is up on 100 years after Lenin 
100.com. That's the numeral 100 followed by years after Lenin.com. We'll include that in the episode description as well. This is our last episode of the year, our 63rd episode altogether. And we would appeal to our listeners that if you like the podcast, share it and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get the word out. All right. Happy holidays, everyone. And a, and a happy new year. Okay, let's go. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Pam. How's it going? Good. It's good. It's good to, uh, it's good to see you. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like this is a longstanding conversation that we're returning to after many years um, through a dark occasion of the present. Certainly. Um, which I don't really see an ending to anytime soon. So I think it'll be here for a while. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict again flaring up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a perennial issue. It keeps coming back and back and back. It sort of seemed a little bit quieter there for a, a while. Right. Actually. Yeah. And now that it's flared up, you know, one of the things that Platypus does is we try to intervene in how students meet the left on campus or how they come to the left on campus. And this is clearly a way in which students are feeling the pressure to speak as leftists or question mark. Like, are they, do they think of themselves as leftists when they speak out? Um, you know, we'll talk about this through the panel. Platypus wants to intervene in the political education of students. So we are hosting an international series of panels, left perspectives on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And we've had our first panel of the series at the University of Chicago on the 29th of November. And the recording will be linked in the episode description. It's already on YouTube. Many more to come, many more in Chicago. We'll have one at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and at Northwestern if you're around, and also Germany, Australia, and the rest of the United States. We also just had one on the West Coast as well. That's right. We just had one in Oregon. So we thought it's it would be a good occasion to reflect on the panel and see what came up and what lingers after now. We've had a few days to think about it. So a brief introduction just to the speakers that we'll be talking about. We've we had Bernard, who was a speaker for our, for the Spartacus League US. We had Hassan D, who is a co-chair of the political education for the students of justice in Palestine in Chicago. So SJP. WJT Mitchell, who is a professor of English and art history at the University of Chicago, and he also has served as the editor of Critical Inquiry since 1978. He recently published an article for Counterpunch, Holy Landscape, Israel-Palestine, and the American Wilderness. And then Rabbi Marilee Gordon, who was part of, in the 1970s, a collective called the Radical Jewish Political Collective Chutzpah and the Chicago Women's Liberation Union. And I believe that she's a friend of the families for Gabe's. That's true. 
So we all kind of pulled together in Chicago to get this curation. I think it was an interesting curation. We had very different perspectives on the panel. And even when there were points of agreement, I think you raised it when we spoke after, like, were they actually agreeing? You know, for our listeners, our panels are we try to curate the panels so that we have different voices, that we have different generational experience that are represented, as well as different traditions on the left. And I think that this panel did a good job at, at reflecting that. So where should we start? This panel in particular, there was a lot more kind of obvious disagreement than is, you know, sometimes happens. Our panels are trying to not, you know, rehearse the same kind of disagreements that often happen on the left with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's so much of that, that it's very easy to kind of just rehash the same talking points. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a challenge, especially when you have a broad panel where you have Zionists and anti-Zionists, because they're just going to go at it. So like when I was inviting Merrily, I was very specific. I was like, the point of this panel is not to debate Zionism, yes or no. It's not to say like, is there a genocide? Yes or no. Those are like the talking points, which you can kind of read everywhere else. Right. But the point about of, of this panel is to talk about the left. What right. should the left think about this? What's the relevance of Israel-Palestine for the left? What is this an opening for the left, et cetera? There's all kinds of questions very focused on the left. And so when I was inviting Merrily, I was like, your history with chutzpah, right, as like in 60s and 70s American radicalism, I think young people today should hear about that. How did Israel-Palestine figure into the imagination in the 60s and 70s? And you kind of heard that a little bit from her as well. Yeah, and I thought this was productive. I know that um, we talked about it briefly, whether or not she like, she fit in the panel or not. And I thought she did because she has this shared new left history with W.J.T. Mitchell. And they had a very good back and forth you didn't hear this in his opening remarks, but when Mitchell spoke in response to what the rabbi had said, he recognized himself in her comments. He said, I was there. I was in the kibbutzi. I was also had this conception of the political imagination of agrarian socialism that I thought certain things were possible. And then those horizons of possibility for him changed. And then he came to different conclusions about what was possible in this part of the world, in part because he had a conversation with a Mossad agent who told him, how did it go? The, the Palestinians hate us because they want our land. Right. That, the, that it's he, a land conflict. That it's a yeah. land conflict. He said something about how others thought the Palestinians hated Israelis because they were Jews. And the Mossad agent said, no, they don't hate us because we're Jews. They hate us because we're occupying their land and we're not going to give it back. And for Mitchell, he returned to this story like three times in the panel to just, you know, make clear that this was this moment for him that clarified a lot about the nature of the conflict. Mary Lee, we're the same generation. Uh, in fact, uh, we could have joined your, your group, I think, that we were involved in all the same things. Uh, so part of my sense of the left is uh, a kind of aching nostalgia for that time when we thought uh, politics, uh, social relations, sexual relations, the whole thing uh, could be rethought. Now, you know, it, what is the left now? Um, at a time when it's certainly not in the ascendancy, I don't see uh, 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 anything but 
the potential of coalitions of various kinds among uh, people who are going to disagree at many levels. That is, I don't see any uh, politically correct line that can guide us through this. It's going to have to be improvised, uh, made up on the fly. And that is going to lead us into great moments of uncertainty. On the other hand, the rabbi, she was talking about this tradition of Zionist socialism, socialist Zionism. I think I got it mixed up when I asked the question. I wasn't sure if it was like, which is the modifier? The Zionist socialism is something that, at least in my experience in the United States, is completely esoteric, strange, and no one knows. I mean, uh, you run in very different circles and your family has a history that like you're aware and you're educated on these things. But it's really not something that if you grow up in the States, you go to public school and you end up in college that you hear much about. It's very buried. I mean, I think that like the kibbutz movement, right, which is like a very broad thing. It's not like one thing. And there's totally like sectarian politics within it. Mm -hmm. There's that whole history. And you didn't hear that come across like so specifically, but Marilee no. kind of alluded to it when yeah. she was talking about like kind of back to the land, you know, forming some kind of utopian society, some kind of like utopian agrarian society. Yeah. I mean, when she started to speak, she really get presented herself as what I imagine like a new leftist would present herself, right? It's new left left perspective. She said, we were part of a radical Jewish journal. We were anti-capitalist. We were feminists. We were for gay liberation. We were anti-war. Right. Anti-Vietnam War. Right. That was like at the forefront of their self-understanding for sure. Right. I think they were taking a cue from like the Black Panthers as well, which is like, oh, go organize your own community. And so they were like, Jews, we're going to organize our own community. That's part of that turn to identity politics on the left. They're part of that story. Right. In a particular way. Right. It's like like the self-determination of a community and the way in which it has political agency or not. Because one of the things that she said is what we recognized at the time, so when she was much younger, was the absence of a political organization that can meet the needs of Arabs and Jews. So that's how she introduced her own perspective Personally, my politics are pretty simplistic. I consider myself to be far left, but as a moral stance, that is. I'm not part of a political party. To me, to be far left is is to support human rights for all humans. When I preach as a rabbi, I return again and again to these core teachings, and you don't have to believe in any God for these to be core teachings. This is from a hundred before the common era. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? The corollary to that is, if not now, when? Don't sit on your tuchus, it's time to act. The only glimmer of hope I have witnessed are on a grassroots level, such as those I experienced on a week-long visit to Palestine a year ago with 18 other American rabbis. And to my mind, the only way that I see forward at this time is to develop relationships, to work on a grassroots level, and to recognize 
the pain and the human rights of the other. Mitchell's opening comments, I thought, were much more about the people that he knew. I mean, he's obviously worked with artists who work at the wall. He was talking about this kind of experience, but it was the presence of the rabbi and her history that led him speak about his own lost political history where he used to think something different than what he does now, because what he thinks now on the panel, he said, I basically agree with Hassan the Students for Justice in Palestine speaker. He's like, I, I basically agree. I accept everything he says. I accept Something everything like he that. says. Yeah. And so it could have been quite flat, but having the rabbi there then let him talk about his own different perspective, which he then has since changed his mind about. He said, you know, if if I had known you in the 70s, I would have joined your group. Right. So something something happened. And I mean, the rabbi said... At one point, when someone from the audience, I think, asked, so what happened to that imagination, to the agrarian socialism? What happened to all of that? Her response was, well, what happened is that Israel just became very capitalist, that it became ultra-capitalist, as if it wasn't before. And that, you know, like now the settlements are something else, the land's being used for something else, and that there's like no way of... Well, there's like a literal interpretation of what she's saying, which is that like the kibbutz, like the movements themselves totally died. And it used to be like once upon a time, you could like show up to a kibbutz and work and become a member and become like and join the kibbutz. And then it changed so that like actually it's real estate property and you can't you have to buy property on the kibbutz. You can't just go and work and join. So that changes the character completely from being like, you know, an ideological, like a socialist utopian movement to, you know, property management. And also like, you know, some of them often will have like different commercial ventures. There'll be a factory, there'll be a farm, whatever it is. And so, you know, it's a business, Mm -hmm. it's a business and a property management. That is a change that like that happened. And so like to say that it like it went from being socialist to capitalist could have like a literal interpretation in that sense. Mm-hmm. Of course, it like it's using capitalism and socialism in different ways than we might when we're talking about the social totality, talking about society as a whole. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about that. The other, I mean, the other big thing that changed, of course, is the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that affects everything completely, especially the left kibbutzim very much saw what they were doing was like taking their own road to socialism. And that was like part of the imagination. Yeah, I wish that would have come out more. You know, my first question, I had the first question on the floor for the Q&A, and I asked, there's a lot of the history of the left that has come out in what many of you have said. I pointed out Bernard and Hassan, and then I said, what is this, you know, Zionist socialism, socialism, what's that about? And I felt like she was very guarded about it. She even said, she she pointed to your father in the audience and said, if you want to say some things about it, maybe you would know better. And I thought, huh, it's interesting. To answer your question about social Zionism, socialist Zionism, uh, is the was the ideology that uh, Israel should be a place of Jewish self-determination as well as a socialist society and that it was very important to be an agrarian society where Jews were working the land, Jews were part of the proletariat, um, and that was the basis of 
the um, the Labour Party and um, though and parties left of the Labour Party within Israel. And I don't know, Mikhail, if you have something more to add to that because it's not my forte. <laughs> no. Nope. Uh, may I follow up on that though, Marilee? Uh, I feel like part of the reason why the question was asked is because something like social Zionism seems like a total contradiction from the perspective of today's left. So I'm wondering why you think that no, from the 70s we move. Uh, first of all, in Europe, for centuries, Jews were denied being able to own land. They were denied being able to have certain jobs, certain professions. Um, so the idea of having a place of refuge where Jews could take part in all parts of society. They could be the policemen. They could be the, uh, the farmers. Um, they could be the garbage collectors. What, whatever it was could be done by Jewish workers in a place of self-determination because the oppression in Europe was so great that there wasn't room for that. I, I also just think that's not a history that she's super tied into. That ends up kind of being esoterica on the Israeli left that's kind of not really as present on the American left, and like for American, you know, 60s radicalism, Yeah, which is okay. the kind of that's familiar that I would put her in. Yeah. So maybe that's what it was about, right? What you said in terms of the inspiration from the Black Panther movement, self-determination yes. of communities and like this conception, this framework, which, of course, like the self-determination of communities is something that Hassan himself was espousing, even though he's not calling it self-determination. So the exactly. S the SJP young man who is maybe like an older Zoomer, he was the youngest person on the panel. And, I, you know, to his credit, he was trying to be as careful as he could at presenting his own perspective and had moments of reversal on the panel himself where he was trying to clarify what he meant. Essentially, the nationalism of the oppressed is different than the nationalism of the oppressor, right? Like he, that's that's off the gate. Like that was his main clarification. Okay, Israel is, set, is a settler colonial state, but that's not a sufficient analysis. We have to understand the Zionist project in the context of imperialism. It's always been a project that has uh, existed in the context of imperialism. At first, by allying, allying itself with British imperialism, the British mandate was what facilitated the so-called Jewish homeland, uh, the homeland for the Jewish people, at the explicit rejection of political rights for Palestinians. And after the British mandate ended, uh, soon after that, the U.S. became the key guarantor of Israel in the Middle East as a client state. So we always have to understand Israel in the context of U.S. imperialism. Now, when we talk, whenever we talk about Israel, we have to understand this as a U.S. war. The U.S. is, uh, both parties have demonstrated, as they have throughout history, uh, that they stand unconditionally with Israel's uh, genocidal policy against the Palestinians. The Democrats and the Republicans have refused even the most basic humanity. Uh, they, they've, you know, they've allied themselves openly with fascists from the liberal end of the spectrum to the Republicans. So it's a U.S. war. The U.S. is providing the guns. The U.S. is providing the bombs. The U.S. is providing the diplomatic cover, the vetoes. But it's also um, we have to understand the the position of U.S. imperialism in the broader Middle East. So for one thing, Israel is bombing South Lebanon. 
also. Hezbollah is also a part, a part of this um, war. And as is the few groups in Syria, so, I mean, Israel is also allowed to bomb uh, Damascus airport under U.S. cover. The Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen who've sent missiles, their missiles that are um, targeting Israel are being intercepted by U.S. warships. The, the few uh, militias, the Shia militias within Iraq that are um, supported by Iran, the, that are under the Popular Mobilization Front are also being targeted by U.S. strikes in direct connection to this uh, escalation against Gaza. So many of these have the characteristic of being um, Shia groups, groups that are backed by Iran, and they're the, the main, uh, and Hamas also is, is allied with Iran, these all have the characteristic of being um, backed by the Iranian government. So I think what the main question for leftists is, you know, how did it come about that Hezbollah became the effective military resistance in the south of Lebanon? That wasn't always the case. This is a development after 1967. Uh, there was actually a very strong Lebanese Communist Party. And this is one of the things I would like to say is there are third worldist Marxists in the Middle East that need to be read now. Mahdi Ahmad, the uh, head of the Lebanese Communist Party, had an analysis of colonialism and imperialism. Uh, Ghassan Kanafani, one of the leading Marxists in the Palestinian resistance movement. Uh, had analyses that dealt with the issues of class and other issues that are particular to understanding the Middle East in a very sophisticated way. Um, but after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 and the Iranian revolution, that's, that's the situation where the left became eclipsed by these um, other movements. So I think it's wrong to group all the Islamic resistance movements as um, reaction in a simple way. It's clear that Iran's anti-imperialism uh, against the United States is, is, is very contestable. For one thing, the Iranian government itself is uh, racked by a protest movement, but I think it's uh, ambiguous. We have to deal with the fact that the protest movement itself in Iran is not a leftist, uh, leftist movement, although it's progressive. And the Iranian government itself uh, is actually a force that is backing groups that are standing in the way of U.S. imperialism. So that's a key dilemma that leftists have to deal with in the sense of uh, building effective bases for resistance to U.S. Uh, imperialism and Zionist colonialism. It was a little underspecified. He was very well-spoken. But I, the point that I got from him was like, there's a history to Marxism within the Islamic world broadly mm -hmm. that, that cannot just be dismissed. That was his point. And then I my question was like, okay, I'm not going to dismiss it, but what do you think about it? Because he's sort of responding to what I would imagine he was expecting from Bernard or was expecting from Platypus or from the left generally, which is like, oh, this sort of like nationalist Marxism that is like religiously inflected, maybe, is a problem as like a flat dismissal. And he was like, no, we can't flatly dismiss that. But then, what? Well, maybe just to go back to how he started his comments, which I think mm -hmm. are important to point out for a platypus panel. He started by saying, I want to recognize that this is a very different crowd than you would find at a student protest. And he sort of recognized that what he was being asked to do on the panel was very different than what he would be asked to do at a protest, which we want people to recognize, right? That this is Absolutely. not the same. And he then said that immediately what's on the table for him in terms of what is there to do was that what the Americans can do is apply pressure to bring the escalation to an end 
quicker than it would otherwise. Yes. I wrote that down too. I wrote that mm-hmm. down too. Right. Well, what because do you Because I was about? a little bit, I was a little, that was a question that I didn't get to ask him, but I was kind of like, that's a pretty low horizon. At the same time and in the same breath, while he started with that, in his own opening remarks, he espoused a one-state solution as the only viable solution today. Yes. He basically says, look, one state already exists, right? Because it's really the state of Israel that's managing all of these people. And so the question is, what kind of what kind of new arrangement would take place? It's it's one state already exists, and it's a state of like vast inequality of apartheid of, and and there should be equal rights under the law. That's the argument. They should be equal rights for all. It should be one state, but it's not going to be called Israel because, as he said before the closing on the panel, he does not recognize the right of Israel to exist. That's the other question for Hassan that I didn't get to ask, which is like, if you're for, you know, full democratic rights for all and everyone should vote, you're you're kind of like then also asking, like, almost nobody in the entire region would want there to be, would want to live together with like the other. (laughs) Nobody would want there to be one states with full democratic rights for all, virtually nobody. Right. And so, so then it's like a sort of weird thing to be for it's like it's, the what the problem with the one state politics is is like well what is the politics that you're pointing towards and it and that's where it has to sort of take a step back and make an appeal to international law in the abstract as opposed to any political party that would actually be there well here is where i think i could be wrong but i think what he was at, what he was actually saying is that even though, yes, their one-state solution is the only viable solution, the current government is what he called a fascist Zionist government that manages a settler colonial project, which takes the form of an apartheid regime, and that that needs to be brought down first, that that is the first and foremost the obstacle for any kind of liberation movement, and that... Unfortunately, Hamas is the only military viable force today. And while we may not like it, we should come to some understanding as to why is it that that came to be, which is why he was pointing to the history of the left in this region, but also accepting it as the only, quote unquote, viable military force today against the fascist Zionist government. Well, was he pointing to the history of the left or was he pointing to, you know, the ways in which Bibi Netanyahu has reinforced Hamas or also the ways in which historically the Israeli government has undercut sort of secular, uh, more liberal Palestinian nationalism? I think that is, is, is where he was going. And that's like a familiar kind of argument, but which also just serves to dodge this question of like, well, okay, yes, the situation now is really screwed up. It's terrible. It's a total mess because of this history. But there's a way in which like, for the question of what is to be done now, that stuff doesn't really matter or like it matters, but in a very indirect way. You could argue that it's Netanyahu's fault that Hamas is powerful. Why should that mean? that we should support Hamas. Hassan's answer is, well, they're the only viable one. But that just begs the question. 
well, what for? What would mm -hmm. the goal be? What would they achieve for the left? Well, I mean, again, I think for him, what it would achieve for the left, there's this fascist Zionist government, right? Which needs to be which would be dismantled. Which yeah. needs to be dismantled, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, the the question as to what would come after the quote unquote fascist Zionist government is dismantled, right? I mean, it raises a lot of questions. He did talk about the Lebanese Communist Party. He talked about it as a model. He said that there were a lot of Shia members of the Lebanese Communist Party that he did, as you point out, though, then double down on how Israel's actions were responsible for destruction of this left, which then brought about and strengthened um, the Iranian-backed groups after. So there was a way that even though he recognized that there was a history of the left in this region, what was most important for him was to point out the fault of the the American government as political actors in the world and dismantling something that perhaps could have been otherwise. I think he even at one point recognized Bernard from the Spartacist League sitting next to him was the one that pointed out that he had gotten some things wrong in terms of the history of the left, Baathism as preceding some of these communist parties. You know, Bernard said, actually, that that's not what happened. And he gave then a brief response to Hassan about these, quote unquote, these Marxist-Leninist groups, these Marxist-Leninist groups in the region, which both he and his comrade from the audience, when she stood up to give her remarks, said were these Stalinist organizations that stood as obstacles for the left and for what the vision of the Third International had been vis-a-vis -vis the question of decolonization. The question as to what happened to the communist, uh, the different Stalinists and different groups that uh, were active and then actually uh, their, their, their positioning uh, ebbed in the face of the Pax Americana Arab nationalist and then Islamicist. That has to do with the false strategy they had. They did not have the strategy that was taught by Lenin and Trotsky's common turn that we all have to learn. That communists seek to lead to lead the, the, the national liberation struggle. In those instances, these Marxist parties, putative Marxist parties, let the nationalists lead. In fact, politically subordinated themselves and the working class base to the nationalists, and even in the case of Iran, uh, to the Islamists. We thought it was a great thing uh, for Iran to rise up against uh, U.S. imperialism. U.S. imperialism had dogged Iran for decades. But what was necessary was for revolutionary communist leadership of the national liberation struggle against U.S. imperialism. And uh, that kind of explains what happened to the uh, to the left, why it, was, why it is not hegemonic, why other forces, because they capitulate to these other forces and didn't uh, see the necessity of carrying out uh, the, uh, the communist policy of the communist workers movement leading the struggle for national liberation. That history, which was more buried, I was trying to get Bernard to like lay it out and I asked him about like the nationalism of Wilson, like vision for self-determination and then Lenin's vision for self-determination. What did that mean? And, you know, he 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 said Lenin was revolutionary, you know, 
and Wilson Wilson was a, a racist uh, capitalist politician. I really felt like what needed to be specified was that moment of the 20s and 30s consolidation of a Stalinist leadership of the decolonization movement, because that is what Hassan was like returning to as a model, like the Stalinist Marxist-Leninists. And Bernard was, Bernard was, even though he was denouncing it, he wasn't quite telling him why it was wrong. And so Hassan's response was, that seems dismissive. On the one hand, Hassan is like, Wilson was a racist. On the other hand, he's making appeals to international law. Right. A framework of like nation states, which is like, you know, set up by Wilson. Right. So that's a little strange. And that would have been more interesting. Like, it would be nice to hear Bernard talk more about that. It would have been nice to hear Bernard speak more about a lot of things. I I think that maybe it was also because they clearly wanted to recruit him and they wanted to recruit the SJP members um, that were in the audience. And I think when they really came together, it was a strange moment at the end of the panel when Ben Katz, our member from the audience, asked about moments of opportunity in the history of the left in this region and whether there were any and what lessons to learn. And and they didn't go back to 1920s, 1930s. They didn't go back to 1917. They didn't go back to the 1905 revolution. They went to 1977 to 1979, the Iranian revolution. Right. Hassan said, well, there's an opportunity. There was an opportunity. And, you know, he said it really didn't have to go the way that it turned out. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, the Spartacists are going to now say something, right, about how the left capitulated to the anti-imperialism of fools, of the mullahs, and, you know, like, they're going to they're gonna say what they said. And, of course, they didn't, and Bernard actually reversed the position. He, he gave this revisionist account where he said, we were wrong. We were wrong then. We should have been able to speak to what the mullahs were speaking to. That's how he put it in a kind of vague sense. And essentially getting back to this conception of military support while political criticism, right? Like they have a military support of the anti-imperialist forces and they keep their socialist banner raised while supporting the military defeat of imperialism, which is when he turned to Hassan and said, well, the problem with Hamas is that they don't have the right targets. Yeah, what did he mean by that? Because it was like, oh, maybe we should have had military support for the mullahs while politically critiquing them because they had the right targets. But mm. Hamas, Hamas doesn't have the right targets. Oh, because they're just killing civilians. Because they're just killing them. civilians and they're, you know, right. The point you made about the Iranian revolution is extremely important because you had a society... Iran was so locked down that America could do anything, murder, it could not be touched because they were Americans in, in, um, in Iran. That's what, that's what the Iranian population responded to with such vehemence when they took over the embassy and everything else. The problem is, of course, the Marxist left in Iran, Fedayin, Ashraf Dagani, Tuda. They saw their role not as taking the, and you had, during, during, during the overthrow of the Shah, you also had a very active uh, mobilization of Arab workers in the South, in the oil, 
feels. All this was, 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 was kindling to light, okay? For workers' power to end the oppression of, 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 of people on, who, on the land. Of all the mi ethnic minorities within Iran that the Shah repressed. That was all a possibility. But we see that was the key question that the, that the left failed on. Ourselves, we failed on it. We did not see the importance of that the, at that point that, that the cause of mass liberation must be led by the, by, by the communist vanguard in the working class. We said, down with the Shah, no support to the mullahs. But everything that, the, but you had to speak to what the mullahs were speaking to, the national oppression of, the, of Iran. You had to have your own program to end that. You couldn't just say, well, that's not a, that's not a problem. We, uh, that was our error. We failed on that. Well, there was also, uh, it was something that I've, I hadn't heard them say before about like, because he was talking about, because, you know, plenty of people in the Red Army were religious and that's mm -hmm. fine. Certainly, I thought that was like an interesting point. But it's like, oh, they're, they're taking like a different tack on that history now. Instead of saying, oh, you know what? Like, actually, religious politics on all sides is an obstacle for any socialist politics in the region. Instead, he's saying, oh, you know, like plenty of people were religious in the Red Army and that was fine. And it wasn't an obstacle. For socialism, they were they weren't an obstacle in the sense that they were part of a political leadership not based on like a religious a constitution of a kind of religious order, which is why it was sort of strange for him to talk about that his like history of the Red Army like and like soldiers being religious as a way of trying to talk about military support for Hamas. Right. So he doesn't think that military support for Hamas is viable because Hamas doesn't have the right targets. But yet he was kumbayaing with Hassan on the basis that he too thinks that the Iranian revolution could have turned out differently and that the Spartacists had the wrong line and that the Spartacists needed to know what the mullahs were speaking to. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was like their last moment of interaction on the panel. And Bernard turned to him and said, what you're saying is very important. And like we do need to look at the Iranian Revolution, um, and so they came together on that particular historical point. You know, it's something that just to say some. I yeah, I recently gave a teaching at the University of Chicago on the founding of Platypus and Washpastone's history and helplessness, and we discussed the uh, early education in Platypus on the Iranian Revolution. We had read Kevin and Janet Afari on it. We'd we'd read Fred Halliday and. Irvin Abrahamian, and there was something about this turning point, this moment, and the counter-revolutionary development of an ideology that was against not just imperialism, but against the entire project of a modern society. And that was that political moment. So to see it as an opportunity, I guess, struck me as odd. I wanted to talk a bit more about the Spartacist League a little bit, just to say, to just kind of register a change, because like the Spartacist League that I remember was would have talked about, you know, not Arab against Jew, mm -hmm. but class against class. Not Arab versus Jew. That's right. That was the line for a socialist federation of the Near East. That was right. their line. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I expected them to say. And they mm-hmm. didn't. And I was sort of surprised by that. Because instead of talking about, you know, joint working class politics, work like working class politics for everyone in the region, it was like, how can like we need to appeal to the Hebrew working class so that we can drive a gain a wedge against Zionism. Right. Zionism is the obstacle. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is different. Is a is a is different. And also and the Palestinian people. That's also a different thing. The Palestinian people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That too. Right. Mm-hmm. Talking about people, not class, mm-hmm. not the working class. Mm-hmm. It's a lowered horizon. There's maybe the Spartacists have come to this conclusion like, okay, there's not really a Palestinian working class that we can talk to. We need to talk to the people. I wonder about that. I wondered about that. I, I mean, because he did have like, it needs to be a working class movement. There needs to be a working class leadership. We need to have the Israeli working class, like the Hebrew speaking working class, the Hebrew speaking, the Hebrew speaking working class. Yes. You know? And so on the one hand, you're like, okay, they're talking about the working class, but on the other hand, it's the Palestinian people. And Hassan, of course, picked up on this because he, when he said that Bernard was being dismissive, um, he said, well, you don't, you know, you're not recognizing the guerrilla, the guerrilla war movements, right? The Marxist guerrilla war movements of an earlier era, which were distinct from what he called Western Marxism that did not Mm. recognize the oppressed, but only spoke in terms of class and that these Western Marxist terms didn't apply or were incapable of fully grasping the complexity, right? Like for Hassan, there was a complexity there that the issue of class did not grasp that the Marxist Leninist movements like the Lebanese Communist Party, for example, was able to grasp. With regard to the analysis of the failure of the left being that the only leftist parties in the Middle East history were Stalinist, or that they weren't Marxist-Leninist, or that they adopted the the incorrect strategy, I think that's um, incorrect because it doesn't uh, address historical or material factors in a real way. It doesn't address social history. That's an ideological analysis. Um, There were many, actually, Marxist-Leninist parties. I mentioned the Lebanese Communist Party. The Lebanese Communist Party was one of the two effective parties that was able to resist the Israeli invasion of 1982, along with Hezbollah. Uh, uh, And many of the leaders of the Lebanese Communist Party were actually Shia. They were from a Shia background, from the south of Lebanon. The Communist Party in Iran, the two-day party, uh, had more of a Stalinist orientation. Uh, But but on the other hand, there were also uh, Marxist parties uh, contributing to the Iranian Revolution, like Fedayin uh, Khal, also the Mojahadin Khal, which are not easily um, understood just simply in terms of Western Marxist terms. They were actually very complicated and have to be understood in, in, this, in the context of guerrilla warfare and Maoist movements at that period. So I don't think these can be just like simply dismissed without a historical understanding of them. You know, this does get back to the influence of al-Shariati, and it's this moment in the 20th century, right, of the the Stalinist defeat, the Stalinist counter-revolution. And I was just listening to a workshop that we did in Platypus, or 
I guess, I don't know, we called it a teach-in. It was with Cam Hardy and Richard Rubin on the history of the Socialist Workers Party in the United States. And one of the things that Richard said in that presentation was like the difficulty was in diagnosing Stalinism and defining it. And what what was it actually? Right. Like, what does it mean to call like these apart from just the actual legacy of like a Stalinist politics? Why is it that nowadays the Marxist Leninists are having a revival among the people who want to disentangle themselves from the DSA? What they go and reach to is this Marxist Leninist history, this like Stalinist history. Um, and for Hassan, like he was doing that. Somewhat consciously, although clearly he he had like missed parts of the history, was like trying to grapple with it, right? And Bernard was there to tell him, A, I know more about this history than you do, trust me. But also, you don't want to go that route, young man, right? So like, we should talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. That's true. That's mm -hmm. true. That's like, the, that That was maybe like, there's a, a hope. That was the hope that Bernard was trying to convey to Hassan. Although I'm not sure how much that came across because I think that, yeah, I mean, the thing you were saying about Hassan saying, well, actually class doesn't really speak to the complexity in the situation that the different Marxists were talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why the revisionist of the line, the revision of the line on Iran, right, was like an opening for Hassan because that's when they both agreed. Um, right. Right. And that actually kind of goes back. It's like the it's for the Spartacus League that connects to the question of anti-imperialism and the and, and so we could talk about American hegemony, Pax Americana. I wanted to talk about the there was an SJP questioner. Oh yes. So things were pretty. I mean, you know, for an Israel-Palestine panel, things were rather civil. There were a couple. True. There were a couple of outbursts. There were a couple of outbursts, but for the most part, people were able to speak to one another. But quite early on in the Q&A, this SJP member, or I don't actually know. You, you we assuming, actually don't know. I yeah, don't know. I'm I shouldn't assuming. assume. I don't know, actually. He yeah. was somebody in the audience and he... He didn't identify himself. He did not identify himself as a Students right. for Justice in Palestine right. member. So we shouldn't ascribe that to him. But yeah, so what did he say? Well, he said like... I, and, you know, it would be interesting to go back and actually rewatch it. Let's, from let's, memory. let's, let's listen to it. Um, thank you all. Uh, I have a question uh, sort of about the framing of the event and the conversation. Um, I would like to direct it, if possible, just to the first three panelists, um, because I don't, I don't know how to put it politely, but genocide denial and Zionist apologetics of the sort that Marilee's putting forward are not part of the conversation that I want to have, um, particularly as this genocide is happening. Um, the question is about, uh, so the event is titled Left Perspectives um, on Israel-Palestine, and I want to it, wonder if you all could talk a bit about um, what is gained and what is lost by having the conversation um, as the left, meaning self-consciously thinking about what are we doing as the left, what, how do we analyze this as the left, rather than, for example, thinking about our position as U.S. citizens. Um, and it seems to me that there are two kind of extremes represented by uh, Bernard and Professor Mitchell. Um, Bernard's being, I don't want to character your position, but it seems to me that uh, he has a stronger confidence in the left sort of power as a movement, and for that reason feels comfortable dictating 
strategy, uh, solutions, methods, and so forth to the Palestinians um, without consultation. Um, Professor Mitchell seems to think that the left is in a more powerless position, which is a sentiment I share, and for that reason has expressed you know, a lack of clear guidance and a need for improvisation and things like that. But I wonder if it might be possible to instead frame the conversation as uh, around the question of, as US citizens, what is our basic um, responsibility living in the sort of imperial metropole to a population in whose genocide, in whose ethnic cleansing, in whose erasure uh, we have a direct hand, whether we chose it or not? Um, and how might that inform the way that we, yes, engage in theory, we think through our own analysis, and that, that plays a certain role, but at the end of the day, there's always a measure of accountability concretely to the people, even if we don't like all their tactics, even if we think BDS is foolhardy, um, at some level, is there not a place for recognizing that that's the Palestinians' decision to make? Same thing goes for armed resistance. Um, uh, there, there's a you know, wide spectrum of opinion among Palestinian leaders, activists, and so forth about the utility of armed resistance in certain circumstances and so forth. There's disagreements within that national community, uh, but at the end of the day, I think there are times when, while applying critical analysis, while applying certain moral measures of consistency, there's a place to, for saying, it's my responsibility as a US citizen to at least be representing aspects of the kind of resistance Palestinians have elected to engage in that are otherwise not heard. Um, and it's my responsibility to accent the things that are not heard about the decision that Palestinians make, rather than either looking for improvisational strategies just in the domestic US front, or dictating solutions to Palestinians. Um, from the domestic U.S. front. I hope that makes sense. Thanks. Thank you for the question. Uh, Obviously, the first part of the comment is just there's a genocide denier and Zionist apologist on the panel, and this question's not for you, Rabbi, essentially, right? So right, which was kind of interesting. So that was the mo that was the sort of performative protest part of the question. Yeah, and and that's an interesting point to make because actually, Marilee was not the only genocide denier on the panel. <laughs> Right. W.J.T. Mitchell said, said, I don't think there's a genocide happening. Right. Yet. There's and, yet. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah. like maybe it could happen, but I don't think it's happening right now. There's ethnic cleansing. That's there's ethnic said. cleansing happening. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So the that's vulgar. like a funny thing. So it's like, OK, well, why? Why was Mitchell included? I guess because he's not was, a Zionist because he's, not, he's a Zionist. not a Zionist. So there's so that. really what he meant was. I'm directing my question to the people who are not Zionists. Yes. But the whole genocide denial thing was actually just kind of like a, what was that even there for? So that's that, which you get a lot of in these spaces. I mean, sure. one of the things that, you know, maybe bears repeating here, these four speakers would not be on a panel together if it weren't for platypus. At all. They just don't speak to one if, another. I would say there were like three groups of speakers no pairing of which would ever appear on a panel that was not a platypus panel. Yeah. So here is a response by the audience in the kind of thought taboo moment. But okay, so moving moving beyond that, he has this whole bit about what is our responsibility as U.S. citizens in terms of, isn't anyone, doesn't anyone care what the Palestinian people want? I hear you saying all these things about the Palestinian people. And he, you know, he was somebody that said, oh, Bernard, it sounds like what you're, what you're doing is telling the Palestinian people how to act. And um, as if from a position of strength, which, you know, point taken. And that Mitchell, Professor Mitchell, on the other hand, recognizes the powerless position of the left, which he, from the audience, said, I agree with that. 
but really isn't something completely dropping out of this equation, which is what's our responsibility as U.S. citizens in relationship to the Palestinian resistance? Right. So I thought it was interesting that the questioner was like, the framing of this whole panel is about what should the left think? And actually, what we should be asking is, what should we as U.S. citizens, what's our responsibility as U.S. citizens to people as people who live in the metropole to the Palestinians? And that's like, he's sort of saying, like, actually, the left is a, is a bad framework for thinking about it. We really need to think about it as like just within the framework of nationalism. Right. As, as responsible as, Americans. As, that's right. right. As responsible actually, Americans. It sounds like mm-hmm. a, it sounded like a sort of like left or radical thing to say, but actually it's a more conservative position. Exactly. It's a completely more conservative standpoint. Right. It's like we can only really speak as Americans. But then also underneath that is like there is like a left there's a theory of imperialism at play, mm-hmm. which is like not actually that examined, I think. That's right. Uh, That's right. Because I mean, using the language of the metropole. And then and then also like what's our like what is our responsibility, you know, for that? His phrasing, right, about the responsibility where he answered his own question because he's like, what is our responsibility? And then he answers his own question. He says, beyond improvising about whatever domestic political conversation you want to have in terms of strategies here in the domestic sphere, our responsibility is at least to be representing some aspects of the kind of resistance that the Palestinian people choose. And I thought that's very strange. And then he used that word to accent, to accent their resistance. And so it was, it was very vague, but I think what he was essentially saying is that we need to defend as American citizens. It's first of all, not our business to tell them how to resist and that we need to like highlight, defend the ways in which they are choosing to represent, represent them because they're on the verge of erasure. Right. That's like what I thought he was saying. Yes. And, and that's like, like and Bernard's answer, if I remember correctly, was just like, "I'm not telling them what to do. I'm giving them arguments." Well, the program. Like, uh, his, his response was about the program. His response was about, "Listen, there isn't a left to actually execute the plan that I have there, right?" He he wouldn't put it in those terms, but there isn't a force, right? But that you need the program. You need to first develop the program, and if you develop the program, then you create like possibilities, right? Because otherwise, no one is going to say it, and somebody has to say it. Somebody has to say it first. So that's what he was leaning into. I just wanted to point out that Hassan himself, when he was pressed on Hamas, said that Hamas is not the left, but it may be progressive, that it is progressive, that Hamas is progressive, quote unquote, but it's not the left. And the reason why it's progressive, it's because, you know, they're, um, I guess, hurting the Quote, because unquote. they're playing a role in dismantling Zionist fascism. The fascist Zionist. That's what that's the argument. But then that's the question is playing a role to dismantle that for what? Right. What are they going to achieve in their what is their goal? Well, I guess he if he agrees with this young man from the audience, he would say that's not our job to say. And let let the let the subaltern speak, Gabe. Why why you got to shut it down? I guess it, it kind of comes down to that. Right. Which is what your question was about, which is like, aren't we still within this ethno-nationalist framework when we talk about the self-determination? Yeah. So of the that people? was, ex- okay. So that was my question. My question was like, I kind of was able to sort of jump in at the end 
and like asked this question, which was really directed at everybody, because I felt like there was actually kind of a widespread agreement that national self-determination is like is the correct line for the left, not yeah. what we should be supporting. Right. Because actually everybody was sort of was like really saying that. Now, when I I said like, isn't there kind of a curious agreement here? Yeah. You know, like the Palestinian people for Palestinian self-determination, the people who are saying there should be Jewish na- national self-determination, i.e. like Israeli democracy. Uh, they're actually kind of agreeing in a way on the importance of national self-determination. And what was curious about that was that everybody was like, no, 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 I'm not agreeing with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I asked that question. And I thought that was interesting to hear from each of them that they didn't agree. Yeah. Yeah, right. Hassan had his own version of self-determination, which he said explicitly, I'm not calling this self-determination. I'm appealing to international law and like one person, one vote. That Mm -hmm. was his point, Mm -hmm. which is like, that's a fine point. But it also then the question is like, well, what, what is the nation? What is what, who's voting and like voting in what context? And well, if you're going to draw the national boundary, like where should you draw the boundary and why? That is kind of part of the question, and it sort yes. of just buries it when you just say, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't care about national self-determination. Right. Especially after you're saying, well, we should let the Palestinians decide right. what form of resistance they should take. Yeah. And this is where Mitchell at the end just went, well, I guess I'm the liberal on the panel, which, you know, is a funny way of ending things after he had apologized for Hamas and called it. What did he call it? Um, um, that it was a genius military operation? A brilliant military operation? Well, certainly, like it was, you know, well, extremely well executed. I guess so. I guess those are so, ways to choose your words. But as yeah. a liberal, um, right, he's like, I guess I'm the liberal on the panel. And I was like, okay. I uh, thought that was, because, yeah, that was what I thought was so curious, because really everybody could have thought that they were, well, in a way, Bernard was like, I'm going to give people arguments. That's a very liberal position, in a way. And then certainly, like, Merrily, could have also argued that she's like the liberal on the panel. So it was interesting that then Mitchell was like, no, I'm the liberal on the panel. That was kind of mm-hmm. was curious about that. Well, need to wrap up. Um, and we didn't talk about Pax Americana, but I think that this is something that Bernard brought up himself. You know, he was like Pax Americana as is an obstacle and that any blow against American imperialism at showing the sham that it is, right, is an opening for the left. And I guess that's what we're being presented with at the moment. We've got this, you know, war in Ukraine, and we've got a war in Israel-Palestine, and the Americans are involved in both. And maybe there will be another escalation somewhere else, Taiwan. Well, I think there's like two questions that are separate for this. One is, is American hegemony in decline is right. That's one question. That's a sort of like, well, analytic question. And then the other question is, is that, does that present an opening for the left or not? Yeah. And it seemed like to the extent that people have spoke to this directly on either on this panel or on the panel that was at Northwestern the week before on this topic as well, the war and the the politics politics of of war and peace. Yeah. Politics of war and peace. Mm-hmm. Right. So in that panel, the entire, like everybody said, yes, the American hegemony is in decline. And yes, that's a good thing. And it seems to me that if it's in decline, which like maybe it is, maybe it is, that's, I don't see an opportunity for the left that that opens. And actually, it seems 
like much more likely that that's going to point towards mass mobilization for militarism in the U.S. and abroad, globally. But I think that's what, you know, I, I don't want to put all the responsibility on Hassan. I think that he was a good panelist on our panel. I'm glad that he participated in here. But it seemed to me that he was embracing a kind of guerrilla military strategy as um, part of the history of the left that we need to tap into. That the subaltern politics of a Marxist guerrilla movement that need to be recaptured and that that militarism, that turn towards militarism could be an opening in that way. I don't think that's an opening. I don't think that's an opening, but- This feels like- this feels like disillusionment with Obama and like dissatisfaction with the DSA and the like and the Democratic Party and yeah. like oh what we need is more militancy. We right. just need militancy that's because why, otherwise we're going to be reformists. Right, and that and that's, is like that's yeah. why that's why on our you know communication in Platypus we've been talking about the seventies, right? So that's why like Chris has been going on about the seventies, right? And we've been saying that I think for some time now. Like what that's going to look like, the quote unquote return to militancy, embrace of violence, right? The Sorellian moment that Postone talked about in the 70s and whether or not that's what the kids now dissatisfied with the capitulation to the Democrats yet again are going to turn to this militancy, quote unquote, right? Like of the subaltern. And like, what does that, what does that mean? Certainly, um, it feels like a bit of a, a distraction as to like what people should be thinking about doing here. But maybe we leave it there. I think it was a, a good first panel of the series. I think it was thought provoking. I think we ought to transcribe it. And I look forward to hearing uh, others around the globe. Yeah. And thanks to our panelists for, for making it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had um, good forthright participation and good good forthright participation and, and good job on the university of Chicago chapter. Go Desmond. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye Gabe. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, why are you here? Uh, because we support the liberation of the victims of imperialism all over the world. Uh, the United States has oppressed the people of Palestine, of Cuba, and so many other nations across the world in the name of profit and the name of capitalism, and we're here to fight that. Is this a leftist protest? I think so, yeah. I mean, everyone's out here to uh, you know fight against the imperialism of, uh, of Israel and of, of the U.S., so... Uh, you know, even if not everybody out here is convinced of the need for uh, socialist revolution yet, then I think it will be. And what do you what do you hope to achieve from participating in this protest? We hope to convince people that the the struggle needs to uh, take on a revolutionary content. Right? We need to fight uh, imperialism in uh, the heart of where it is, which is America. We need to fight both political parties, which are uh, funding the crimes of Israel, and uh, ultimately build for revolutionary working class power. So why are you here? I'm here to support any form of Palestinian liberation, no matter what. Um, Is this a leftist protest? I would say that any form of anti-colonial movement is leftist by nature. And what do you hope to accomplish by participating in this protest? I want the world to see that the world stands with Palestine and that 
the U.S. funding of its war crimes are not a natural phenomenon and that the people stand against that and that with enough support, the people can are the only ones that can fight against that. Uh, why are you here? I guess yeah, to show solidarity with the Palestinians and the Palestinian movement. Um, my family's half Palestinian, so it sort of makes sense as well. And hopefully it reaches some sort of news outlet in something like within New Zealand and hopefully makes some raise awareness, I guess. Okay, great. Thanks there. Do you think that this is a leftist event? And if so, why? If not, why not? I- I'm not really certain, to be honest. I think it tends to make a correlation with left-wing, just because of the way naturally it goes about. But... I don't think necessarily has to be right wing or left wing. It's just more again for freedom. I don't think that has to necessarily be with either group. I think that's a good way to put it. Personally, final question is: um, What do you hope to achieve today? Um, honestly, just again the unification. I think more of a protesting from Saturday. That was more about actually getting our voices out there. Hopefully, that's something that again does happen today. But I think realistically, this is just more of again just showing solidarity with the people who have maybe family there who. You know, um, and you're still getting that emotional support. So, yeah. Great. Okay, thanks so much for your help today. My first question is um, why are you here today? Uh, I'm here today because I'm standing in solidarity as a South Asian in Aotearoa. It is really important for me to share solidarity with. the oppressed with the marginalized because we need to stand for something um, like a lot of us are saying silence is a position and it's really really important to vocalize on issues that we feel uh, like humanitarian do you think this is a left-wing uh, event and if so why oh, if not why not i mean it is so left-wing it really it, it my heart is quite my heart is really tender at the moment, given we are in such like a right-wing government. Um, so it, it's really apparent that left are the ones that care about community authentically, the ones that are actioning and creating community with uh, organizational tools, not just like sitting back. They're actually offering aid um, where you can, offering legal aid for pe- people who are here. Um, it's really solution focused so it's very obvious that it's a left Um, I heard a Green Party member talk before and it's just uh, a lot of totoko as well for what happened to the indigenous Maori uh, of how they were colonized here so it's just a repeated a repetition of history that we're trying to show the repeat cycle great yeah that's a really good comprehensive answer and I like the point about the repetition of history Uh, My final question is, what do you hope to achieve today? I hope to achieve um, inspiration. I think for a lot of us, we're realizing that these really right movements, uh, if anything, we can see it as a fire for the radical, like not for the radical. We can see it as a fire for people who care about other people that in order to get change, we need to be the ones to do it. If you want to see change, organize, organize people. Let's like create systems. Let's curate the society that we want to live in. Great. Thank you so much for that.
Platypus has hosted the conversation on the left over the Israel-Palestine conflict a few times over the course of our organizational history. The recent re-escalation of the conflict, which has primarily focused on the Israeli assault on Gaza following the Hamas terror attack of October 7th, has again placed the question of Israel and Palestine at the forefront of activism and organization on the left internationally. The character this takes on today also seems to heavily recall elements of the early 2000s anti-war movement. The Stop the War Coalition in the UK, first established in response to the invasion of Iraq, has taken a leading role in organizing weekly Sunday mass demonstrations in major cities across the UK. In Germany, the anti-Deutsch are re-emerging in the Black Bloc to defend Israel's rights to exist as a necessary agent against the threat of fascism and anti-Semitism globally. It's at moments like these, when old banners are picked back up, tired strategy and tactics are resuscitated, and familiar faces re-emerge, that the archive of engagements hosted by the Platypus-affiliated society can help us discover earlier iterations of these symptoms of the dead left, perhaps in clearer form. It can also help us take stock of how the way the left approaches this topic has changed in varying degrees of consciousness. So I am happy to welcome everyone, all our listeners, to our new episode of our archive segment. And I am delighted to introduce my co-host Lisa and our guest, Ian. Now, Ian, I just want to give you um, a bit of time and an opportunity to come introduce yourself because you've got like a very interesting history with Platypus. I was not exactly in the core group of people who started Platypus, but I was around that. And I was a student of Chris Catrone's at the Art Institute of Chicago before Platypus was started. I took part in Platypus for a long time and... I don't know how long it lasted, maybe for a year or so, I was the president. I did a lot of activist work prior to Platypus. When I was young, I did like Amnesty International, Israel-Palestine, uh, like solidarity type work, and um, Free Tibet was also really popular at that time. I actually did, did um, some things around that. I had for a while, I co-chaired a Israel-Palestine um, student group at the Art Institute of Chicago, actually. And then later I did Platypus. That changed my perspective a lot. Right. And did you did you first encounter Platypus through Chris? Um, or was it through maybe an activity that was hosted? Um, like, what, what was it that kind of captured your attention? Actually, I think the first thing I, I read that was um, related to Platypus was History and Helplessness by Moish Pastone. And I actually ended up taking classes with him at the University of Chicago eventually. But um, yeah, that was the very first thing I read that. And along with um, an article, there was an interview um, that someone in Chicago had done with a scholar named Fred Halliday. And he used to be, uh, he was a close contact with uh, Tarek Ali because they were both on the editorial board of the New Left Review for a long time. They had pretty different paths because Fred Halliday ended up being more of a liberal activist later. I don't know if that's really an accurate way to say it. He would have said, said that he had always was liberal, probably, and believed in human rights and such. But he um, wasn't a part of the sort of Marxian left in Britain in his later life. 
and but he and he was a true scholar of the Middle East. He was uh, an interesting person. He was fluent in many languages and uh, traveled, I know, extensively in the Middle East. So he had uh, a lot of insight into the conflicts there. And he interested me for a while. You talked about these Israel-Palestine student groups that you were engaged before Platypus. Um, so I wonder what discussions and what questions were raised in those student groups compared with, you know, the uprising uh, on the left right now. Yeah, I'm not sure if it, it's uh, how much of it would be a uh, factor of age and knowledge of the conflict or not. But when I was engaged in that work, it was very much uh, humanitarian oriented. You know, it was... Uh, about uh, you know prisoners and abuses with settlements and you know the general history I think probably everyone I encountered was probably in the two-state solution kind of camp I think that was pretty mainstream I, I, I encountered people later who were who viewed it as one state solution from the uh, there's a group at SEIC that uh, Uh, wrote for the electronic intifada. I don't know the full their full history, but they were the first time I encountered the idea of a one-state solution, um, which was later. So, the but the activist work that I did was very uh, yeah, it was not super ideological. Thus, that I would kind of describe the activism that I, I encounter probably now. So at the moment, I think the idea or the imagination or just even the discussion about a one-state or two-state solution on the left is very rare, if not even absent. So the categories that do pop up right now are anti-fascism, are anti-imperialism, or decolonization, which are all categories of the old left so when those things happened um, we have we encountered that history does in a way repeat itself um, and we do face the ghost of the old left in this moment right now it came up a little bit with the ukraine war but i think right now we do have a, a more strangely specific talk about anti-imperialism and anti-fascism And I wondered, um, I mean, for preparation um, to the segment, we read your article um, from 2008, Baptism and the History of the Left in Iraq, Violence and Politics. I'm curious what um, the motivation was in 2008 to write this article. In the article, History and Helplessness, there one of the points that's made is that um, the... Uh, contemporary left doesn't look very deeply at the politics and the actors who are in these areas in the Middle East. And so I was interested in researching that more um, just to get a little bit of background. I did know a bit about the different political groups in Israel and Palestine, but I didn't know really anything about Iraq. And so I just wanted to gain more of an understanding of it. I didn't know at the time what Baathism was um, as a political movement in its history, um, nor, nor a lot about Arab nationalism. Bethism is Arab nationalism, but it's a little bit more um, extreme in its Iraqi form. Um, and I was keyed into reading the works of Kanan Makia. Kanan Makia was a uh, British leftist whose 
uh, was born in Iraq and who had a long history there. Uh, he wrote a book about bathism. It's called Republic of Fear. Um, and it gives you an extensive account of bathism. It was famously rejected by Verso, which is the publishing house of the New Left Review, even though Kadan Makia is kind of a Trotskyist milieu to that magazine. But they thought it was, uh, I don't think there's a clear statement that they ever made on why they didn't publish it, but it's pretty suspect that that had happened. And so that intrigued me and I read the book and it's it's a little bit of a tough read because bathism is so violent uh, and so reactionary, including, you know, just horrendous torture, violence, branding, disfiguring people, et cetera. You know, so he goes into the details of the history there. And of course, it got much more violent after the first Iraq war. And also, you know, there's the history is intertwined a bit with the Israel-Palestine conflict, as it is with a lot of the Arab nationalist movements. They use uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict for their own domestic politics in ways that are extremely nefarious. And we encountered that also with people who are leftists in Iran, too, um, where they, you know, the regimes there use the Israel-Palestine conflict to whip up support for, you know, these very extreme right-wing movements there. And and I followed up on that in concrete terms. There's a part of that article where um, I talk about uh, labor organizing. Platypus participated in an event that involved actual trade union leaders from Iraq. Well, what did these trade union leaders talk about? You know, what was the kind of politics that was being raised here? What was the purpose of engaging with Iraqi trade union leaders? That then kind of spurred that research. There was a separate organization called U.S. Labor Against the War, and it was people in the AFL-CIO, that's like the big labor organization in the U.S., who were doing tours in the U.S. where uh, trade union leaders in Iraq were giving speeches about the situation. And there was some pretty interesting things there going on. The U.S., for example, wasn't going to fully... Um, modify the constitution um, in Iraq, and it actually was going to keep Saddam-era labor rules in place. Um, so that was obviously something that they wanted to have fixed. Um, that was one of their their main points. And then, of course, they were talking about the violence and, and the conflict itself and how that was in the way of their uh, their labor organizing and give people some experience with that. Now, I was just fascinated with it Mostly because to me, and I think most people go through this phase who are on the left, you know, see labor organizing as like the more serious or more um, enticing activism. So I was, of course, like on another level, just interested in, in that to get that experience, see what they were up to. Also, you know, many articles and many things always talk about solidarity. It's like, what does that mean? A very ambiguous term. Solidarity for most people is sort of just like slogans and <laughs> marching. So I was I was fascinated by this because it was very um, concrete. Yeah, so we went to that um, and Atia gave a talk and it raised all kinds of issues about the different political parties in across the broad Middle East. And one of the trade union leaders like was there to respond to it. And that was really interesting. They had very mixed feelings. I would say the trade... They, Union people were not very leftist, 
but they were receptive to uh, the conversation more so than actually the U.S. labor organizers were. It was at that event too that we met other people. We met trade union leaders from Venezuela and from Iran as well. Uh, that led to some other articles that are in the PR that are interesting. I want to pick up real quickly on a few things here. In Postone's history and helplessness, which as you said, I think in the first generation of Platypus where we've got the anti-war movement going on and this seems to trigger what was recognized or understood as a revival in the left, um, this, this article's kind of circulated, right? And cuts across in a in a particular way, mostly because of, of its critique of maybe what we could call parapraxis, right? And Postone specifically relates this to as a, or describes this as a kind of unconscious repetition of practices in the new left that have kind of lost their initial self-understanding. And he tries to clarify that. And I've, I've just got a quote up here that I'm going to read out real quick. Um, so just quote, the new glorification of violence of the late 1960s was caused by a severe frustration of the faculty of action in the modern world. That is, it expressed an underlying despair with regard to the real efficacy of political will, of political agency. And then later it says violence um, focused as it was on the bureaucratic stasis of the Fordist world, it echoed the destruction of that world by the dynamics of capital. You know, you bring up the trade union organizing. The question that kind of haunts this article, but also the questions that were arising in that moment of kind of the anti-war protests, and even now, I think is the question of like political agency. And it is the confusion or disclarity of, you know, who is the political agent or who could be a political agent in this conflict that is really throwing the left. In 2021, when there was kind of another flare-up, particularly in Gaza, we held a panel called the Politics of Solidarity. So we had um, Moshe Machover and then a representative from Da'am, which is, I think, an Israeli kind of NGO, but it's, you know, like he calls it a split, a split from a split of Mott's Pen, which was like a kind of Israeli Trotskyist group that was trying to engage with the Israel-Palestine conflict. But we also had a trade, a organizer from a kind of trade union movement called the, the Angry Workers, who I think in the panel, he calls himself Marco. You know, kind of with the one state, two state, it's, you know, do we solve how do we solve the issue like through nation states or through kind of a federation? And maybe we can kind of go into that argument a little bit more because it, it pops up a few times over our engagement. But that issue of kind of like engaging with the working class is also feels very helpless in this strange way. So Mark, you know, because Mark is trying to say, okay, we can talk about one state, two state, but we need to kind of advance a kind of a post state solution. Um, and we do this by realizing worker demands in, and the workers in Israel and Palestine will have similar demands that they can find solid grounds on. You know, it seems like to be a return towards like to the economy or to get more serious beyond these old discussions of like a socialist federation of the Middle East or kind of like a NGOism 
of kind of realizing the Palestinian state and having more democracy in Israel. I'm surprised there isn't more of this, I guess, what I would call my earlier naive perspective. There seems to be a lot less of that. I'm not saying that's the right perspective, but I'm surprised by there being a lot less of it now. Um, but maybe backing up slightly from that, to even get to that, I had to kind of follow another part of Moishe's argument to get myself there, which which might be a big leap for people now, which was just was getting past the concept of blowback. That's just before the part that you read in the essay, where he tries to push back on this concept that political actors are, you know, their motivations and what they've done is reaction. That's actually like a difficult conceptual leap for people. I had to work through that to get to this my next naive assumptions of kind of like labor solidarity. It's one thing that was really powerful and really useful to me. And that argument that Moish has is that is attributing agency to the actors on the ground in these different places. Agency, which is, you know, circumscribed by the conditions that are in those places, but Agency, nonetheless, you know, there's many different forms of political reaction that could take place there. And that was interesting to me, too, when I was trying to understand more what was going on in Iraq. And I think it's a good place to start if someone's interested in what's going on in Israel-Palestine, too. That there is um, many more actors than you realize taking many different approaches, the particular spectacular ones that have occurred recently are very specific and come from a very particular ideology. And that's worth anyone who's interested in the left has to take that very seriously. I've noticed over time that there's less ideology critique on the left. I noticed that a lot when we were doing activism, that there was a reluctance to do that in all kinds of contexts. But I've noticed that that has gotten more and more extreme over time. And that makes it ex like uh, almost insurmountable to not see um, everything as reaction. And if everything is reaction, it takes you down a slippery slope of, you know, the only actor being the US and so forth. Yesterday night, we hosted a panel on left perspectives on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It was a German panel, so all German chapters worked together on putting something together. We had a Zoomer podcast host, and she wasn't aware of the last 20 years of millennial left history. But we also had some older leftist veterans from the anti-Deutsch and one millennial anti-imperialist, soft anti-imperialist, ex-Trotskyist. But they also pressed what happened in their, you know, the living history. So the history that they as leftists really experienced, they suppressed everything of that. At the same time, they were like, I don't know how we get here. It's, you know, it's, it's strange. It's frustrating. The left hasn't, isn't an agency that could do anything in this conflict. So 
questions from the audience were, why do we even talk about Israel-Palestine if the left is has no power to change anything there? What I found interesting is that we do talk a lot about Moish Pistone in this moment. And I do have the feeling for my education um, or, or in experiencing or doing my education on this topic is that I read, reread Moish Pistone, which is part of our regular reading group. But this text never spoke so much to me as in the last week. So I do have the feeling that history and helplessness does in a way appear as millennial left path not taken that does come to the the surface in this moment where, where the millennial left and its you know potential of becoming something is really lost. You know, it's Right now, we do remember Moish Pistone. Moish Pistone is kind of taken up by the Zoomers. They pick up Pistone for this panelist um, yesterday night was like, we I can use Pistone to, to work against anti-Semitism and anti-racism. It seems strange that this article is so present right now and hasn't been the last years. I mean... It could be my ignorance, but I have the feeling that also the Israel-Palestine conflict didn't play, wasn't that much of a topic the last years. Why? You know, I grew up with a Jewish background. I had no problem living in Germany <laughs> for a long time. I stayed in Poland. Didn't matter. The only time I've encountered any kind of like bizarre anti-Semitic like rhetoric is probably like leftist protesty things. I otherwise never had seen that and haven't seen it since. I think things can change a lot, but there's such an absence of a left to affect the conversation. If anything, the left has become like a very militant group that is focused on identity and that's something Moish brings up that, you know, this identitarian type of politics is especially poorly suited to understanding conflicts like this. You know, in the terms of violence that people who resort to violence um, in their politics often share this identitarian framework. Um, it's kind of required if you're going to view groups of people, not just like uh, combatants, as um, enemies. Yeah, so the left has gone gone in that direction more and more so. It's gone so far in that direction that it seems like those groups are the most anti-civil liberties. You know, I'm not aware of anyone who did work around, uh, you know, the extreme restrictions that happened in COVID and economic displacement in the Middle East. I know that was devastating. I saw that in the UN like uh, report on the Middle East effects of COVID. So, you know, the whole Middle East, all these authoritarian regimes there took cues from the US on how to act to crack down on civil liberties. So actually, surprisingly, I think people would be surprised, you know, people like in the US and stuff who are leftists that the fact that we're so 
uh, loose on that stuff, uh, the rest of the world pays attention to that actually pretty closely. Yeah, we cause problems. It's, it's weakness causes lots of problems for the rest of the world. This is what really shocked me about going back to these, um, like the one state, two state solution discussion thread that runs in the, in the most recent panel um, we did before, before the outbreak of this conflict, conflict in 2021. And that discussion arises between um, Moshe Machover and Tamir from Da'am. But also in Richard's interview of Joel Koval and Hussein Ibish, right? So, and and I think it shocked me on the basis that those discussions take they do have some kind of hope that it that there is a solution, right? And they and you know, kind of two state takes on this kind of ng like I I agree it's like it feels very liberal mainstream kind of ngo ish. Right. Um, Hussein Ibish in, in this interview says, I want the occupation over yesterday and I will do anything that is necessary within the realm of like, you know, talking to my senator, putting forward policy proposals to get this over. Because the accusation against Koval and that Tareen makes against Machover, you know, because they're upholding like this very old school Trotskyist you know, idea that any type of solution that relies on the democratic state is going to fail because it relies on capitalism, right? It's like relies on liberal bourgeois democracy and that will eventually collapse in on itself. I mean, there's, there's also elements, you know, Machover talks about, um, oh, actually, and, and Tovel, they both talk about like Zionism, right? As like this particular symptom of capitalism, or of, of ideology that cannot kind of be extinguished by democratic, by like a bourgeois democratic revolution and that you need to make an argument for an international socialist solution, right? To, to which like this newer generation of, I think they're kind of like old millennials, kind of very young Gen Xers who are putting forward the two state solution are like, well, this is really unrealistic, right? Like this is, it's fantasy and to try to, use the Israel-Palestine conflict to recruit for your, you know, socialist project is an obstacle. And it's interesting now to talk about how even the, like, very liberal NGO two-state solution is also now seen as very unrealistic, right? Um, and I don't know, I wonder if, like, the left now would say, like, okay, maybe it is capitalism, but actually, and this is kind of what Lisa brought in at the very beginning, the problem is more like like neo-colonialism, settler colonialism, and the politics like really then, or the conversation around like the political will or the political solution changes massively. And this is why I think it's like at the very end of the archive that we kind of looked at, was a recent panel that we put on earlier this year on decolonization. Because these are, the, you know, in addition to, like, the more classic, like, anti-imperialism, anti-fascism, the problem is seen as deeper than just, like, imperialism as global capitalism. It's, like, imperialism as, like, Western ideological, cultural oppression and hegemony, which, you know 
like like seems to be a lot like not only a deeper problem but just like also it's the politics around that is like a lot more unclear what i'm trying to get my head around is and what what feels particularly funky about the way the left is talking about the israel-palestine conflict today at least from how i've engaged with it how i see it is that those those desideratas of political solutions are really gone and it's turned into this extremely nihilistic it feels a lot more nihilistic than previous discussions we recorded on israel-palestine and maybe that's why we're now turning towards like looking toward the anti-war movement which seemed also a lot more like have this kind of like deep nihilism i almost get nervous sometimes when people like if i'm in common conversation someone wants to bring up like capitalism because it's like they're 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 ready to go off the deep end when get their perspective on on things once they start down that path but i i think there's a misunderstanding in terms of just concrete practice um on the left the left for so long has been this kind of demo culture and i think that's how people experience it that's how i experienced it and when i read history and hopelessness and i started looking at things more con- concretely you know you you forget how rich the institutions of the left are i mean we speak sometimes of like these left ngo or groups like this and when you go back to the history of them you're often surprised like you know in the us the um you know the american civil liberties union who set that up the socialist party set that up 100 years ago or more than 100 years ago the NAACP, who set that up socialists actually set that up <laughs> you know you'd say oh who's a normal like liberal organization maybe in complex you know doctors without borders oh some french 68ers actually set that organization up so at these big moments the left has set up uh these important uh institutions what's surprising now is that no one like they're not like maintained uh they start losing their even their like liberal side but you know in the us like those organizations have kind of gone in different directions over time and i don't see anybody doing that kind of work very much um and that also leads you to extreme uh helplessness on the left like the millennial left didn't build any institutions like they have some magazines um here and there but they didn't n- nothing really came of it they didn't go in any directions they have these parties but the parties are just like pressure group demo parties that is increasing the helplessness of these situations and it leads you to an identitarian view because you then start lumping people into groups and you take this kind of uh you know this group's good this group's bad i like their perspective that perspective which is easy to do in like a kind of talking heads way but it doesn't give you a, a sense of what's possible what also happens is that they form the new government so coming from germany the green party is in government right now which is formed from old 68ers so this is also a party that was formed by the new left that does haunt us and also a frustration that comes from the the green party a group that formed themselves out of this frustration was um, also the anti-deutsch right um they were part of the green party and then in opposition to the green party and at the same time we have anti-deutsch people in every german party <laughs> so so they kind of became a political actor but not you know on 
in the in the left perspective, but on a position on in capitalist politics. But in terms of you know the crisis of liberalism, what I've also found interesting looking to the ISF article that was published in 2010, they call for a militant enlightenment. And I thought that, you know, this is maybe this is just the other side of the coin, you know, the form of misrecognition of the problem that we live in. The anti-Deutsch are in a way misrecognizing the problem as well as the postmodernist leftists and the anti-imperialist left. Yeah, the anti-Deutsch are their own thing. And I they were useful to think about because they demonstrate, okay, so I'm for like Palestinian nationalism, the creation of a two-state solution, a Palestinian nation. And then encountering a group that's so, I guess, militantly in their terminology uh, for the um, Israeli nationalism, it makes it more clear the dead ends of that, I think, on both sides. I mean, I think there probably is some degree of nation, there's some nation building that has to happen for all the people in that area so they can have good jobs and, and live. And raising that question, I mean, that, that opens up so much, so many problems. I mean, that's what I guess circles me back often to uh, socialism and Marxism. I mean, why, why can't every state just be successful? You know, why is it that there's so many failed states everywhere? You know, it's not just uh, Palestine, you know, it's Pakistan, it's, uh, you know, the Sudan, etc. There's all kinds of places that are partitioned and divided and are still dividing. You know, why can't everyone have a liberal democracy? The Moisha's article helps you try to think more about the political actors, you know, and how they work. You know, they all, they have domestic and international agendas and they're playing them out to do different things. And what is that about? And I think it's why these, these kinds of conflicts bring back up, I think what I called like platypus 101 or which, you know, postone really articulates in this article, which I really, it's the responsibility of the left to understand as close as it's as it can the problem of society right so what is the inner contradiction of bourgeois society under capitalism and what would be necessary to overcome it and which i think is something that ralph leonard articulates really well in um our decolonization panel i think the the task is and and maybe the point that Stone makes in history and helplessness is there necessitates an understanding of capitalism and the dynamic, the particular form of capitalism that emerges or that collapses that would then need to inform a kind of politics, particularly around like a political agent. And that is something that the left cannot lay claim to. Right. I think we can and it's like in the antidotes like extreme militant enlightenment liberalism, 
And then also like the anti-liberalism you start to get with identitarian politics. There is a, you know, it's both undialectical and it's both, I think, missing. Well, you know, if we're taking Marx seriously, it's there's an inner contradiction that needs to be worked out consciously that requires political organization um, on the basis of the nature of capital in that historical moment. And we don't we can't like claim to knowing what that is. And I think that's where that profound feeling of helplessness comes from. It's it's not only do we have a strategy, it's like do we have an understanding of what's actually going on of international relations and international capital, movements and capital. And I think what we're experiencing now is is that continued you know, the the millennial left might have been an opportunity to deal with that, to to recognize that that's the issue and to reconstitute a politics or an understanding, like a politics that would enable that understanding. And we still don't have that. Like the anti-Deutsch were asking, like, is there a left outcome to the reunification of Germany? That's an interesting question. That didn't happen, but that's their starting off point, And that's an interesting question. The whole debates around colonization, I mean, their whole framework, it's asking a question of, you know, how has the, not just the colonized, but also the colonizer too, is being like deformed by this relationship that's being created. You know, the original stuff is coming at this whole other angle <laughs> to the problem mm. than we usually assume. And going back to that and kind of Palatable style usually helps you see how far we've come. Torn out and looked at from these older movements isn't their original, more utopian-esque question that they started with. It's like after that particular movement lost its uh, the wind in its sails, you know, it took certain assumptions about why it failed and lim- and limited the scope and brought that into their worldview. And unfortunately, most people pick up that part. They don't pick up the like utopian impulse that started this phenomenon from the beginning. You know, they they inherit the uh, the, the failures um, mm. of those particular movements. And that and once you turn that into uh, ideology, you know. You know, that's just an inherently uh, right wing. I remember that, um, you know, when when the decolonization panel happened in Cambridge, I was visiting you, Rebecca. How we summarized the panel was the slogan of decolonization meant to produce a civil war in the third world to make a revolution happened in the capitalist centers. And now it seems to, you know, be an ideological fight on on universities, on which books and which ideas can be taught. And for for the anti-Deutsch, it's also interesting because they 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 don't have their starting point isn't that much of a distinction of anti-imperialism and anti-fascism. So they they come from a very anti-imperialist idea that you know from germany germany should never ever be able to start a war 
So all, you know, when we think about the war in Yugoslavia, the position the anti-Deutsch had there was, you know, a, a clear anti-war uh, position out of, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, side with the, the German um, imperialist forces. Ukraine broke that completely down and also Israel-Palestine does break all this stuff completely down. So we have, um, we had a free speech panel and one of the anti-Deutsch was like, okay, I think it's okay that the government uh, does not bring the refugees uh, from Palestine to Germany. They, uh, everyone who, who does um, wave a Palestine flag is an, you know, is an anti-Semit. Um, and they shouldn't come to Germany because this is uh, dangerous <laughs> and we shouldn't allow this. And the starting point from the anti-Deutsch was not that fetishized, was not that strangely confused. But I do think that um, the 2000s and especially the um, uh, 9-11 and the second Antifada did something to them. So there was a break um, in this movement, and they really regressed from this. So when we think about, when we think back to the anti-war movement, there was the Bush administration, and right now we have Joe Biden in government. And I wondered what we what we can also see is that the left was anti-war against the Bush administration, and now looks like as if it's very much pro-war with every justification that is needed. So what do we make of that, given the fact that the anti-war president Trump is waiting for his re-election in 2024? Um, so what, what does this mean? So isn't maybe, do those protests point to the helplessness of the coming election and how the left does again try to cover its collapse. I don't know what will happen with a group like the DSA. I know that they increase their membership, I guess, from the from their activism they're doing right now in regards to a ceasefire in Israel Palestine. And a lot of their older members who are like labor Zionists, because that's actually was the main view in DSA a long time ago. It was like a kind of labor Zionism. So that organization is going to be totally changed. Um, and there's going to be huge money, I know, spent against their representatives in the Congress, um, well, in the House of Representatives. And they might lose because of that. I don't know. Or they might not. But they'll... I think there'll be a lot of mobilization for those particular candidacies, uh, like in Michigan. I find it difficult to comment in terms of, okay, the relationship between the left, the left's activism at the moment, and previously in like the anti-war movement, or other solidarity demos, and the election cycle. I mean, AI know the, the DSA is in a has been in a crisis moment and this is worsening it so i know there's a lot of like young dsa chapters which are disaffiliating from the dsa um because they they feel they don't take a more radical position or 
outspoken position against Israel or the assault on Gaza. And here in the Labour Party, uh, the UK Labour Party, the current leader has, you know, spoken about, you know, the quote, Israel's right to defend itself and making some very essential like flubs about Israel's actions in, you know, assault on Gaza. And the Labour Party itself especially is experiencing a lot of um, rebellion against its left wing or from its left wing councillors. So a more kind of local government level. Yeah, on a more local government level, you've got kind of representatives resigning from the Labour Party or speaking out against it. And a lot of its base openly speaking out against the leader of the Labour Party in the lead up to like a election where, you know, the UK election where Starmer's predicted to win. And I, I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things. So it's difficult for me to try to say, okay, what does this mean for the left or where is this going to go? Cause it does feel profoundly like weirdly removed. Like it's so, it's like feels so apolitical and more, you know, just like liberal moral. It's, 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 you know, it's a bit of a soup at the moment. <laughs> and there is this feeling of like a, like cry before resignation. Um, you know, there's a kind of resignment to the labor party and that they're going to take over and it's going to be, or they're going to, you know, win the election and it's going to be as conservative as this current government. And there's going to be no change. And I think that will, I might just deepen this feeling that the left will continue to be irrelevant or that the only thing they can do is resist or speak out. Um, sorry if that was a bit long, but there, you know, it's actually it just profoundly unclear. People on the left, they've lost their like sense of the really, of the basics. And, you know, any political group that's going to come to power or, you know, be popular needs to be seen as um, trustworthy. <laughs> there was a, there was a panel where someone, uh, I, think, I don't know if it was Chris or not, but it was like, who's going to take out the garbage. <laughs> right. You know, the left can't be seen as the group that fans the flames when there is a terrible conflict. You'd want to be like, discredit the people who are fanning the flames of, of a horrendous conflict. You'd want to, you know, I mean, even I think, you know, a politician like Biden or, or if it's Trump who comes next, it's if they can resolve the conflict, they can bring a ceasefire and peace and so forth. You know, that's that's political win for them. The left needs to find its way to become the trusted person in, in, in times of conflict, not the one who fans the flame. And I think that their approach right now is has a fan the flames, I think, view to it. I think that's what probably most people would think. I know that's that's the opposite of what that core on the left thinks, but I think in the wider audience that that's how unfortunately people see the see the left. They, you know, they're not around until there's these um, conflicts and they're suddenly out there rooting in this narrow way that's super ideological 
and that's not going to bode well. And I also think, Lisa, of what you said about a lot of the activity in the anti-Deutsch or a lot of the anti-Deutsch ending up in German government and those governments being used for just like really conservative capitalist governance. I think looking back over the 20 years of Platypus, starting from the anti-war movement, there's kind of this, at least this is the impression that I get, that following the protests and the demos, there is a sense of reinvigoration and responsibility that the that the left is trying to take up. And, you know, this brilliant, which we haven't talked about, this really brilliant interview with Tariq Ali conducted by Chris Catrone. Um, Tariq kind of speaks to this moment of the creation of the new SDS. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, he, he says, you know, we attended these meetings or because I don't know if he was actually there. He was like, I heard that these meetings were held and that these old activists from the 60s were trying to tell young people what to do. And I would encourage the young people here not to take their advice or to not feel pressured into taking their advice, but rather to forge your own politics and take seriously the task of the left. So so that's, that's in my head, that's this desiderata of the millennial left, and it results in these moments like the Occupy movement or even the creation of these like neo-social democratic initiatives. There is a sense of responsibility and of creation. And I don't know, you know, there's this weird desire in me that history will repeat itself, <laughs> you know, and that after these demos, that nihilism or that feeling of helplessness feels like a resuscitation, but maybe it's just me, but I feel really, really skeptical and pessimistic about what's salvageable from this moment besides the fact of, besides the opportunity to look at regression and why it's interesting going back to the archive and why we're going back to the record we have of engagements over this issue. Because we can see how this these these were being taken up in quite serious ways, like very serious ways in terms of the left over time. I mean, and this, maybe this is where Pam's segment is going to come in, where she debriefs with Gabriel. You know, Platypus has been holding panels about Israel-Palestine and anti-imperialism currently. Maybe that's where, where we can kind of reflect and see how seriously this is being taken. But it feels very pessimistic at the moment in a way that it it didn't earlier. Oh, I mean, it definitely was like super pessimistic earlier. I, <laughs> I should probably say that. But the... Um, the situation on the left is definitely gone in a, um, I think, a more, I guess, militant direction. It's a, I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, but there's so much less what I would call like naive, like liberal activism now. And that's that's a problem. And certainly the left is less interested in it. I don't know the exact reasons why people feel that that road is closed but the left should be doing more to argue that the road is closed for doing making actionable headways into building a left um it's you know that and that's really like the initial starting off point in platypus is that the current ideologies that are circulating 
on the left are hindering people. And it seems that that's only more and more the case. And the millennial left's a great example of how ideology got in the way to building anything. There's not much that can be said of the millennial left in terms of like institution building or following a different path or any path that I'm aware of. And I would say that this does ring the task of platypus to us. So, or to put it otherwise, that we encounter or that we recognize the repetition of the founding moment of platypus does task us or pose the question of what platypus does mean in 2023. I would say that there has been continuity and change. And one change is, you know, the death of the millennial left as a failure of a generation that had a potential that tried to be, that tried to become different or become other than itself. And there, there is also this anecdote in this teaching from Lucy where she um, went to a left event and someone said to her, oh, look, there is uh, Lindsay German from the SWP, a very huge leader. And Lindsay German was like, I have never been a member of the SWP uh, because there were some conflicts of a split or something. So she tried to make this thing not ever, not happened. And I do have the feeling that this does happen right now with the millennial left, that people try to suppress the last 20 years, that people, I mean, unconsciously, maybe, people will try to call it a success. Um, but I do think that we are here to not forget. And I mean, the Zoomers started out as an you know, overcompensation or an overreaction to the failure of the millennial left in their neo-Stalinism or, or left radical answer to the failure of the millennial left. And they started repeating, not questioning old categories. And so this is the frustrating thing about the Zoomers in this moment. Also the, the absolute helplessness and resignation in in an appreciation of violence, as we talked about, that was also addressed in Pistone. I guess there's just one thing that I've noticed um, when I did, when I went to some left events in the last six or so years, I've just been surprised by people's interest in this, um, yeah, I guess more like Stalinist left, like encountering people who would like self-describe themselves as like a tanky. That was new to me. And then, um, you know, just interested in, uh, you know, a lot of these like militant groups in, um, from the history of the Latin American left and so forth. There is a lot less contact with the new left. And on one level, I think that has some potential because you don't have the ideological like bracketing that the new left provided, but it lacks their rigor and their like realness. So unfortunately, that leads a lot of people to a more cartoon-ish version of what the left was and what it did. And for whatever reason, I think that seems to also lead people down the path of the left and attracts people to the left out of an idea of like revolutionism 
where they're interested in the left out of the excitement of conflict that when you look at the history of the left, you know, revolutions and wars and so forth, they're excited by that. That's the history, but that wasn't what the left was about. And that's unfortunate. And that was easy to understand when you met people, 68ers, that that's not really what they were about. They might have apologized for it, but they weren't about that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I encounter people now who are a little bit more just about that. And that's unfortunate. I want to thank um, you, Ian, and Lisa, as always, for being on the segment. All the resources to what we read for the segment and what we call the, the archive or parts of the archive that we engaged with will be in the podcast episode description. But thank you, everybody, so much. And I hope you have a lovely evening. Cool. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Delaci. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!
Oh, 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 oh,